Hello and welcome to Oncology Times broadcast news with the Audio Journal of Oncology. I'm Peter Goodwin and I've just had the exciting task of reporting from the annual meeting of the American Society of Hematology in San Francisco, together with our scientific editor for this edition, George Canellos. First, news about platelet disorders. Idiopathic or immune thrombocytopenic purpura, ITP, can be treated with the monoclonal antibody rituximab. That's according to evidence presented at the ASH plenary session by Francesco Zaia from Italy. His group randomised 100 adult patients with previously untreated ITP to receive either standard oral dexamethasone therapy or the same plus rituximab. I asked him what they'd been trying to do. The primary objective of the study was the sustained response. In effect, the achievement and the maintenance of a platelet counts more or um, equal or more than 50 per 10 to the 9 liters for, for at least six months from the beginning of therapy. The secondary objective of the study were the evaluation of the initial response, safety, and um, the, uh, to look to possible predictive factors of the response and um, the pharmacokinetics of rituximab. What we found that the experimental arms was more effective than dexamethasone monotherapy in the sustained response, so in the primary objective, and also in the initial response. And the difference was statistical significance for both the response. Could you run me through the figures? In the experimental arm, the sustained response was 63 versus 36 percent. If we look to the per-protocol analysis, this difference was higher, it was 85 percent in the experimental arm. What then are the recommendations coming out of this for doctors? Uh, we believe that on the basis of the VIR results, uh, steroids still represents the first-line treatment, but uh, we believe that uh, rituximab can be uh, given the, um, earlier in the course of the disease uh, before splenectomy in patients who uh, are refractory to steroids therapy. And what were your findings on safety though? Yes, uh, both treatments were uh, well tolerated. Uh, we found uh, an increase in the incidence of uh, adverse events, of any adverse events in the experimental arm. But if you look to the incidence of serious adverse events, we found no difference. Francesco Zaya from Udine University. And after I spoke with him, I got the chance to ask the ASH president, Kenneth Kashansky, for his take on these findings. Well, for the last several years since rituximab has been available, people have been using it in small, uh, non-randomized studies and have been finding some promising results. An occasional patient will have a remission of their ITP. An occasional patient will have improvement only to relapse later. Uh, and it was done in a very uncontrolled fashion. Dr. Zaya's study is a nice study because it's a randomized study that looks at standard dose of rituximab uh, randomized compared to, uh, uh, to glucocorticoids alone. So glucocorticoids alone versus glucocorticoids plus rituximab. So it's a randomized, carefully done study and actually shows that the addition of rituximab greatly improves the response rate of patients with severe refractory ITP. What would you take home or would you advise clinicians to take home? 
I think that as we gain more and more experience with immune modulation, the first round of therapy for a patient with severe immune thrombocytopenic purpura is to use immune modulation. If glucocorticoids alone do not work, which is the common uh, result, then adding something like rituximab to glucocorticoids as, uh, as therapy is probably reasonable. If someone gets a remission from that, terrific. If they continue uh, to need glucocorticoids plus rituximab ongoing because they don't get a complete remission, then begin to start thinking about these thrombopoietin mimic agents to stimulate platelet production. Kenneth Kashansky from the University of California, San Diego, president of the American Society of Hematology. But I wondered, what should the busy oncologist make of all of this? I asked George Canellos if he was surprised at the effect rituximab had on ITP. Not at all. I mean, we've used rituximab for patients who, who have failed steroids or have done an inadequate job of steroids and uh, with steroids, and uh, it works. We, we know that. We have bailed people out of serious uh, thrombocytopenias, uh, that uh, did not respond to steroids uh, with uh, rituximab. Uh, I don't think that's new news, but he, what he did was he combined it up front and uh, asked the question whether or not the responses would be higher and whether they would last longer. And indeed, that's what he showed. What, in fact, is the importance of this to cancer doctors? Well, in cancer, the major diseases that cause this are the small lymphocytic uh, neoplastic disorders known as chronic lymphatic leukemia or small lymphocytic lymphoma. They're very closely related, but both of them have an association with other autoimmune phenomena. Uh, ITP may be the most common, but they can have autoimmune hemolytic anemia, uh, uh, other autoimmune manifestations that are quite varied uh, in these patients. And so, uh, the management of these people, some of them may be elderly, so splenectomy is not a, an easy thing to contemplate. Um, uh, the value then of rituxan is that uh, it really has no acute toxicities of any severity that you might bail somebody out of a serious thrombocytopenia uh, with that uh, agent. Now, it is also a fact that, that the literature is filled with other immunosuppressants uh, having beneficial effects on refractory ITP. Most of these are anti-neoplastic agents, whether it's fludarabine, uh, whether it's doxel, uh, the encapsulated uh, uh, doxorubicin, uh, imuran. There are a whole host of uh, immunosuppressives that are used uh, in practice that can actually bail out the odd patient with uh, ITP. But rituxan has turned out to be the best one. For the practicing oncologist then, what do you gather from this? Well, I think you, one would start out with steroids, and if steroids worked, fine. If they didn't work, or the patient broke through them very quickly, then rituxan would be the way to go. Uh, I'm not sure that I can say, as I sit here, that the practicing oncologist facing a patient with autoimmune thrombocytopenia, unless there's a great urgency to get a good response, um, he could start steroids and then use rituxan for the fail, steroid failure patients, uh, or he can use both if he wants a response, a higher chance of response and a longer duration of response. Our scientific editor, George Canellos, from the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston, commenting on plenary session abstract number one of the ASH meeting that gave some prominence to platelet disorders. 
A controversial study finding was that you can dispense with routine platelet transfusions for many patients with haematologic malignancies who are being treated with stem cell transplantation. Instead of taking the general guideline to transfuse below an agreed platelet count, the investigators randomised this conventional strategy with a therapeutic approach, and that was in a multi-centre study with 171 patients. Hannes Vent told me you can safely delay transfusions until a patient starts to bleed. The traditional strategy is to give platelet transfusion when the morning platelet count drops below 10,000 per microliter, whether the patient has a bleeding or not. And our new strategy, our experimental strategy, was to give platelets only when you have clinical signs of platelets and disregard the morning platelet count. And what happened in the study? In this study, we did not see any major or life-threatening bleeding, despite this very stringent strategy, transfusion strategy. Um, We had a little bit more minor bleedings because minor bleedings were the trigger for transfusion. And this was not a problem for the patients and could safely be treated by timely plated transfusions. So what are you saying in all then? What's the conclusion of your study? The conclusion is that you can safely perform a therapeutic platelet transfusion strategy and this will mean that more than 50% of the patients, especially the myeloma patients, they don't need any platelet transfusion at any time during the autologous transplantation situation. And all over you can save about one third of the platelet transfusions with a new strategy. This is important not only from the point of costs, it's also very important because platelet transfusions and every transfusion has side effects and you can reduce the side effects. Mm. How big an impact do you think you can make on side effects? Obviously the cost is quite clear, but what about the benefits to the patient? The benefits for the patient are the milder um, transfusion reaction as fever, that's clear what you can reduce. And you can also reduce the um, very severe side effects like the transfusion-related lung injury, which has a mortality of about 60 to 80%. And uh, when you reduce platelet transfusion, you can also reduce this risk. Hannes Wendt from the University Clinic in Nuremberg. But there was a lot of caution expressed at the ASH conference about these findings. ASH President Kenneth Kaszanski pointed out to me that these German results were in a favourable patient group and needed to be tested in other settings and in bigger studies. Those patients, though, were relatively free of major complications. Uh, Those patients with autologous transplantation were relatively healthy going into that study, except for their underlying disease, of course, but they didn't have big anatomical problems, they didn't have graft-versus-host disease, they didn't have sepsis, and so in those kind of settings, uh, it might be it, it's certainly worth studying in those kind of, uh, kind of settings. And we did hear about the uh, beginning of a trial in patients with acute myeloid leukemia. 
who are going to be sicker and who a treatment strategy rather than a prophylactic strategy is worth studying. And again, uh, like so many things in clinical medicine, one uh, wants to see greater numbers of patients treated in a certain way before you change your practice. Kenneth Koshansky. And when I asked George Kanellos, he was even less reserved about his reservations. This particular study, you, you either have to give them credit or criticize them for the fact that they waited for somebody to bleed. They didn't know ahead of time that somebody wouldn't bleed into his head or bleed into another vital organ uh, for which they would then have to give platelets, but then damage would have been done, especially in the brain. Our policy has been, generally speaking, to uh, uh, follow the platelet count down to about 10,000 and then transfuse using the word prophylactically, uh, whether they were bleeding or not, because I think the, the danger is that they could bleed. Some of these patients are on aspirin, some of them are on uh, non-steroidals, and their bleeding tendency may be worse. Of course, we can't assume that every situation all over the world is the same, and when there are millions of dollars potentially to be saved, that money could be spent on saving lives elsewhere. So how do you estimate that kind of balance of the use of resources? Well, I think the, the ultimate argument is that you, you as a physician are responsible for that as a patient, that patient in front of you. And until more of these studies are done, I mean, we just can't go on the basis of this man's trial. But until more studies are done, then uh, uh, the issue of uh, prophylactic tran uh, transfusion of platelets it will not go away. It is done, in fact, and I think the doctor uh, is obligated to do the best he can for that patient and not experiment with them on the basis of this uh, German study, which is I suppose, very well done and, and all of that. But I can't tell you how these patients were followed, how many of them had, they had, a few of them had more difficulties. Uh, but all you have to see, especially in an older population with older leukemics, is bleeding into the head uh, once, and you would never, never again uh, do the wait-and-see uh, policy. You would prophylactically transfuse them. I, I speak for myself. George Canellos from the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, our scientific editor and a regular at the American Society of Hematology meeting. And we heard more news about rituximab in San Francisco with some other findings from Germany that it improved the outlook for patients with chronic lymphocytic leukaemia when added to standard fludarabine cyclophosphamide chemotherapy. I got more on this from Michael Halleck. The major finding of the uh, trial can be described by two points. First of all, the uh, complete remission rate was almost doubled. Uh, with the addition by the addition of the antibody and second the progression-free survival time was longer with the FCR arm as compared to the FCR. What should physicians make of these data then? Uh, it is important to stress that uh, CLL patients are very often elderly patients so one of the major things I should mention before coming to a conclusion is that uh, we did this trial on physically fit patients selected based on a cumulative illness rating scale and recreatinine clearance. And in those physically fit CLL patients, I would, based on the data, now recommend to, to apply an FCR regimen as a first-line treatment for CLL. From the position of the cancer doctor, how much of an improvement should he or she be able to see in the patients? So right now the data um, give a 10 months or let's say about one year difference in progression-free survival time. 
But we expect with the data maturing and uh, from the phase two data that this difference might even increase very simply because the phase uh, two data by the, uh, Michael Keating show uh, that the responders have uh, um, a disease-free survival time for many years, um, at least five years and more. And so we expect that the young physically fit patients which who achieve a CR are benefiting a lot uh, from this therapy and therefore it should be offered to them as a first-line treatment. And when you say young, what does that mean? Well, young is actually a wrong uh, denomination. I would talk, uh, would talk about physically fit patients because a 70-year-old patient who is physically fit can very well tolerate the FCR combination. And how do your results match with the results we've been hearing today from Poland? They are very consistent. Um, both studies show that the FCR combination is superior to FC alone. Um, the results, of course, in second-line treatment are a little bit lower. The CR, the complete remission rate, is a little bit lower. But both trials are very consistent in showing that uh, you gain at least 10 months or more of a disease-free time when you treat the patients with the combination of rituximab plus chemotherapy. What then do you think is the bottom line of your study and uh, the Polish study uh, for clinicians? In one sentence, very simply, FCR is becoming the new standard first-line treatment for CLL. Michael Halleck from the University of Cologne, chairman of the German CLL study group. And I didn't want to let this topic pass without a comment from George Canellos. I wondered if he was impressed with what Dr. Halleck had to say. A little bit, but um, I think the point that Michael Halleck makes, and a very good one, is that uh, they, in a sense, defined uh, patients appropriate for this protocol based on looking fit and being fit. The median age was 61, which is uh, fairly favorable. Uh, as opposed to 71 or 81. And so he made the point very clearly that if you're fit uh, and otherwise without serious comorbid illness, that FCR does give you a better response rate, but, a be but especially a better complete response rate, 52% versus 27%, and a longer progression-free survival. He makes the point, however, that uh, the follow-up is only really two years, that there really is no difference in overall survival, 91% and 88% in, in both arms. And again, it's the same old story with CLL, is whether or not with uh, subsequent therapy do the two lines catch up in terms of survival. Um, but if you have a, a youngish patient, and I think this is a particular advantage of this regimen, a youngish patient who is a candidate for transplantation, obviously FCR would be a better regimen to use to try to induce the best possible complete remission. And in this case, or in his series, it's half the patients. And that would make them, um, if they, you were getting them ready for an allogeneic transplantation, um, that uh, that would make that a, a better regimen to, to anticipate because the fewer tumor cells around, the better the results of allotransplant. But he's not talking about allotransplant per se. It's just the point he was making, that, that the addition of rituxan uh, did a lot more than rituxan by itself would ever do. So my question is, can the practicing oncologist change therapy on the basis of this study for this special group of patients? Well, the practicing oncologist in North America has been using FCR for a long time. Now, you have to remember that there are patients with CLL 
uh, uh, 64% of his patients were Binet stage B, 32% Binet stage C, but even Binet f uh, B patients uh, can smolder along and may not need FCR straight away, may not need anything straight away, and that's a judgmental question, but one has to define very carefully, and I think they tried very much so to define their patient population, but uh, there are patients in whom FCR is not uh, immediately necessary uh, for therapy. There are patients for whom nothing is immediately necessary for therapy, um, but if the disease is moving, progressing over a, a follow-up period of six months, for example, and, and things are happening in the disease and you need to reverse it, then FCR is better than FC. George Canellos, and to complement these findings, the ASH meeting heard about a similar study from Poland that came to similar conclusions, but with a slightly different patient population. Tadeusz Roback told me about his group's results adding rituximab to FC therapy for patients with relapsed or refractory chronic CLL. This study showed that immunotherapy double complete remission rate increased significantly overall response rate and prolonged progression-free survival by 10 months. So what is the message for doctors to be thinking about right at this moment? I think that on the basis of these two tr trials we presented today and will present it at ASH, we have now confirmation of our previous assumption that immunochemotherapy is better for CLL than chemotherapy alone. What about toxicity, though, of adding rituximab? We found slightly higher number of cytopenias in RFC arm. However, there was no difference in infection rates in both arms. So it means that the most frequent complication and the co reason of, of death is not increased by immunochemotherapy. So your recommendations, doctors? My recommendation is to use rituximab in combination with purine analogs and cyclophosphamide in previously treated or untreated patients. Tadeusz Roback, who chairs the Department of Hematology at Copernicus Memorial Hospital in the University of Lodz. I wondered what George Canellos thought of these results, especially after he said that US doctors often add R2FC for these patients already. The results of this study, I call it the results of tens. The overall response rate is 10% greater using FCR over FC. The CR rate is 10% greater F, uh, with the same ratio, and the response lasts two, 10 months longer, so it really is a uh, an example of the three tens. Um, the, the glaring uh, fact is that uh, rituximab by itself in conventional doses is very inactive in CLL, but added to chemo with chemotherapy, there is some obviously enhanced effect of uh, rituxan uh, so that the response rates are higher and uh, the CR rate is somewhat higher. What isn't a po uh, uh, obvious here is the overall survival um, is, is still uh, a matter of debate in, in this series, whether or not there is a difference in overall survival. Um, the median was not reached for FCR and was 53 months for FC. 
but again, there are no, not many statistics with this, and so the hazard is 0.83, so I think uh, the jury is still out to see whether or not uh, there is a significant difference in survival. Uh, I think what this tells us is that uh, adding R to FC does enhance the response rate. Um, there is really no assurance that the patient uh, who has CLL is actually going to live longer as a result of this. Um, and uh, some of the side effects were uh, enhanced by adding uh, rituxan to FC in this study. Uh, so it's, it's interesting phase three trial, but the disease CLL, um, frankly, is going to need more than that to significantly alter the survival. To this day, we really don't know whether any of these therapies actually increase the survival of patients. Uh, compared to either modified therapy or an alternative therapy. So one has to be very careful about assuming that, that this is a magic bullet uh, for CLL. It's a 10% bullet, 10% overall response rate, 10% CR, and 10 months difference in progression-free survival. Boston's George Canellos. And chairing a news conference on these new data in CLL was Linda Burns from the University of Minnesota. Her conclusions? Both of our CLL studies are, as you heard, very large patient populations, phase three, that's our gold standard, multi-institutional, so done at multiple institutions. The patient populations are different, and that's to keep in mind, so you can't directly compare these. These are patient populations that were either untreated or had had at least one treatment. What is the same about them is that regardless of that patient population, that the triple combination seem to result in more responses. However, also keep in mind, if you look at the fine print, one of the things that they looked at in the studies was toxicity. And uh, it appears that there wasn't a huge amount of difference in toxicity of the three-drug regimen versus two for either of the patient populations. And so what this tells physicians is that the triple three-drug regimen um, is better than two drugs, but you also still need to look at the patient that you have in front of you. And if you're concerned about that patient in terms of being weaker uh, underlying illnesses, that that still may be better for, you know, the two drugs. Linda Burns, Director of the Hematology, Oncology and Transplantation Division at the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis, rounding off our first report from the ASH Annual Meeting. And you can read more about all of these studies in Oncology Times, coming your way very soon. We'll be very pleased to get feedback from you about our programme. So, if you feel moved to do so, please email us at oncologytimesbroadcastnews at audiomedica.com with any helpful suggestions you may have. That's all for now from this edition, brought to you in collaboration with the Audio Journal of Oncology. So from me, Peter Goodwin, goodbye.